You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chill. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? You know who it is. It's your boy, Zuby. Before we get into today's episode, I have a really important announcement to make, and that is for all of my podcast listeners to know, everybody who is enjoying Real Talk with Zuby, you, the listener right now, I want you to know that you can now support this podcast on Patreon. If you go to patreon.com forward slash Zuby Music, that is Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash Zuby Music, Z-U-B-Y Music, then you can go on there and you can make a monthly recurring donation to support the podcast. In return, you will get access to exclusive discounts, exclusive posts, videos, whole bunch of cool stuff, as well as just being part of the Team Zuby community. If you enjoy the podcast and you want to support it financially, help it to grow, expand, help us to get new guests, better sound quality, better editing, all that good stuff, all that takes financial investment. And I need your support to make that happen. So please go to patreon.com forward slash Zuby Music and subscribe today. Without much further ado, let's get on to the podcast. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. On today's episode, we are going to be talking about one of my favorite subjects, not because it's been good to me over the past two years, but because it's a fascinating technology that I think is going to revolutionize the world. I'm a believer. And of course, I am talking about Bitcoin and the world of cryptocurrency. And on today's episode, we've got on a special guest. This is Stephen Cole. He is a Bitcoin investor, and he is also a consultant and an all-around Bitcoin enthusiast and crypto carnivore. So welcome to the show, Stephen. How are you doing? <laughs> Thanks, Zuby. Doing great. Happy to be here. Awesome, man. And where in the world are you reporting from? I'm coming to you live from Southern California around Orange County. Awesome, man. So I've done a brief intro there, so tell the audience a little bit about you, your story, and what it is that you do. Yeah, happy to. Um, so I have been in the technology scene, primarily uh, like web and internet technology for a little over 10 years now. So background academically was computer science and then worked in Silicon Valley for a couple large enterprises, 
a couple of small startup companies that were later acquired by large enterprises. Um, so I was at eBay for a little bit. Um, I was at Intel by way of an acquisition of a startup company that I worked for, um, kind of doing a combination of systems engineering uh, as well as kind of management and people leadership for small engineering teams there. Um, but since about 2013, uh, Bitcoin and, um, and economics have really had my heart. Um, so kind of started tumbling down that rabbit hole in 2013 when I discovered Bitcoin. And although I haven't sort of worked full-time professionally in the space, it's been big passion, um, big thing that I love talking about, helping people figure out what this Bitcoin thing is um, and why it might be a big deal. Awesome, man. So how did you discover Bitcoin? Where did you first hear about it? And when did you first get involved and in what capacity? Sure, sure. What's my origin story? Um, let's see. So Bitcoin, uh, you know, was invented in 2009. I heard about it for the first time in late 2012 from a close friend and then again from a couple of coworkers. Uh, didn't really dip my toe in the water officially until late 2013. But um but just, I think it really stood out because some of the smartest people in my life, the most brilliant friends that I had, just wouldn't shut up about this thing. And I shrugged it off the first few times I heard about it. Um, and I think that was the result of, you know, just the web industry in which we exist is all about, you know, what's the, the hottest app this week? And there's always something new and something new. And you kind of get fatigued with, oh, there's, you know, yet another payments app. And so the first time I heard about Bitcoin, I thought, why do we need another PayPal? Um, and, you know, now we've got things like Venmo. Like, why do we need another way to get money from point A to point B? Uh, so unfortunately, I didn't research and dive in very much the first time I was told about it. But after seeing how enthused some very smart people in my life were, I started attending meetups, started reading more seriously about it. And, uh, and then after a while of doing that, I realized, wow, this thing is actually a really big deal. And the more I read, the more of a big deal it increasingly seemed to me. Um, I think the, the biggest tipping point in that was when I realized that Bitcoin isn't just a payment network. So, you know, like PayPal, Visa, and so forth, it's not just a way to get money from point A to point B. It is also potentially a new revolutionary form of money. So not just a network to transfer things, but actually units and things that are transferred on these networks. Mm -hmm. um, and so that side of it and those properties, which were unique um, and never really been seen before, totally just captured me. Yeah, man. This is this is painful for me to hear because I feel like I first heard about Bitcoin around the same time. And I had those exact same, um, I thought it was like just some some fake digital money that you know you could use to buy, used to upgrade your like sword or buy a new gun in a video game or something, right? I thought it was just like, I, I didn't research it. I didn't look into the whole decentralization aspect and you know, the fact that it's uh, the supply is limited and all, all that kind of stuff that makes it what it what it is, you know, the, the main points. So it wasn't until for me, you know, like several, several years later that I actually did the research and jumped online, read a couple of books and stuff. I don't know what spurred me to do it, but um, I did it and I was just like, oh, my gosh, like, how have I like this, this whole kind of world just this whole world kind of just like opened <laughs> up. But I was just like, wow, like this is a. Uh, how have I been, 
I mean, I, th- I think like you said, I think maybe because you're out there in, in Silicon Valley. So I guess, you know, you're surrounded by, you're surrounded by a very uh, specific type, type of person and, and type of brains, people who are like innovators and stuff. Um, but I'd kind of been like out of that, out of that world for a while, just kind of doing, doing my thing with, with music and all that. So it took sure, several sure. more years until I looked at it properly. But yeah, of course, it's one of those things where in hindsight, you, you kick yourself because you're like, oh my gosh, like I, had I gotten involved, like, you know, when I, uh, when I, cause because I was sold on it quite quickly once I did the research. I only needed to research it for a few hours to be like, oh, okay, I see the, I see the, this appeals to me because I'm very much, um, I'm very like libertarian minded and I'm, I'm big on like, yeah, yeah, like you know, yeah, I'm big on personal sovereignty and, you know, decentralization and, and not, you know, people being able to, yeah, have their own sovereignty, have their own power, have their own currency that's not reliant on some of these governmental and banking systems where they can kind of just do what they want really this is unlikely to happen in the uk but this has happened in other countries where they're just like okay like tomorrow we're just gonna the the ten dollar notes are no longer valid the ten dollar notes are no longer legal tender like they did that in india like a couple years ago right they just said yeah oh this this rupee note is no more or they just keep printing money and they're just like okay well we're just gonna keep printing money and yeah your savings are now worth 10 percent of what they were before but like yeah, just don't worry about, you know, and you're just, you, you yeah. see that, you see that stuff happen and you're just kind of like someone like myself, who's a little bit skeptical by nature of a lot of things. Um, yeah, I, I saw that. And when I understood Bitcoin and crypto in general, I was just like, wow, okay, this is something that I think does have value that is going to have a future that is necessary, that does have not just one use case, but a whole bunch of potential use cases, some of which it's already doing, but you know, I think, um, I believe we're both around the same age and having lived through, you know, the era of seeing the way that email rose and the way that the internet rose and the way that social networking rose and how relatively quickly, you know, 20 years ago, maybe a bit more. Yeah. Yeah. Even, even like 20 years ago, the idea that everyone was going to have like a mobile phone, let alone something like a smartphone sounded so far-fetched, right? I remember when people were first getting email addresses and people couldn't see the value in email addresses. I remember when people first were getting on social networks and people couldn't see the, what's the value of, what's the point of this? You know, like, what's the point yeah, of this? To- like, totally, totally. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I think we're kind of at that stage in crypto where, you know, you've got a big number of people who are enthusiastic about it and invested and interested, but, you know, the kind of average layperson is kind of like, eh, what's the, what's the point of this? But I, I've heard people say that enough times now to, you know, in, uh, in 10, 15 years time, you might be using this thing day to day, whether you know it or not. So, yeah, so true. Um, I think we're still early. Uh, I think you and I are on the same wavelength about a lot of what you described and the potential benefits of Bitcoin, the potential value proposition, um, the macro environment of today. As you look around, um, you know, you see the levels of debt um, that sort of nation states have incurred and that we collectively are kind of being signed up for, whether we like it or not. You see proposals like MMT, modern monetary theory that are gaining popularity. Uh, which essentially advocate for, you know, keep printing money and keep running large deficits and um, and kind of putting off the inevitable long-term consequences of those things. And I'm excited about Bitcoin because I think for the first time in hundreds of years, it really gives people a practical means of opting out of that system. 
um, as an expression of maybe their discontent of exiting, if you will. Um, you know, you've the option to exit has always existed, but uh, but it's been very inconvenient in the past. So if you didn't want to participate in the economy because you either disagreed with it politically, philosophically, or just uh, from a practical perspective, that meant things like hoarding cash or holding bars of holding bars of gold under your bed or under your mattress. Um, you know, not being able to transact electronically through these centralized systems and just big inconveniences uh, to your day-to-day -day existence. And now for the first time, Bitcoin presents this system in which you can opt out. You can say, okay, yeah, keep doing your thing. Those of you who don't think this is risky and who maybe think this is sustainable long-term, but I am going to peacefully exit and just go over here and store my wealth and my personal value in Bitcoin, in this decentralized system, which is, uh, you know, cannot be arbitrarily inflated by central bankers. We don't have to play the game of, oh, every quarter we watch the, the federal open markets committee meetings to like try to guess what the interest rate's going to be and try to read between the lines of all these, these people speaking. Um, we know it's monetary policy. It is set in stone. And when the supply is fixed and predictable, as Bitcoin is, um, then its value proposition becomes pretty compelling for, for storing wealth. So there's going to be some people listening to this right now who are like, what are these guys even talking about? Like, what's this, what's this Bitcoin thing, right? So for someone who hasn't heard of it and just given, giving the basics, what it is, what you think the value proposition is, why they th should be interested. So if you were to explain it to uh, just the layperson, someone who's not like a, a techie or a computer science grad, how would you lay it out for them? Yeah, definitely. Um, good to, good to kind of step back and do the Bitcoin 101. So so Bitcoin is open source software, uh, fundamentally. So the open source words in that just mean that there are no secrets. Um, the, the code for Bitcoin is available online. Anyone in the world who understands or is interested in software can go and download it and look at it and see how it works. So no secrets there. It, that software implements both a payment network and these units called Bitcoins, um, abbreviated BTC typically, um, that are transacted on this network. And the, the really interesting thing about it is that the supply and uh, the inflation schedule for those units is fixed and known. So that was written into the original Bitcoin code. And due to a very brilliant set of kind of incentives in how this system works, uh, it can't be changed. So there will only be a maximum of 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist in the world. So I think the immediate reaction upon hearing that from a lot of people is just, no, 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 that, that can't be true. Why would digital something scarce that just like does not compute to most people. Mm -hmm. And I was the same way. I was very, very skeptical of that statement when I heard it for the first time. But after many years of kind of running through various scenarios in my head and reading, learning, seeing things in the community, I am increasingly convinced that yes, uh, it is true. Um, and it's the first time that we've really achieved scarcity in the digital asset realm. Um, in my opinion, that's that's really the big breakthrough of Satoshi Nakamoto, the the person or 
group of people who invented Bitcoin. You'll often hear it phrased by you know, computer science geeks as Satoshi solved the, the double spend problem, which is true, but I think it's more intuitive for, um, for people if you frame it as Satoshi solved the problem of digital scarcity. Mm-hmm. So if you kind of think about the, the internet that we've all known for most of our lives, it's been this internet of digital assets, but abundant digital assets. So if you have um, a digital asset like a picture on your cell phone or um, an MP3 file on your laptop, then you can send those around to other people. Um, and as you visit websites, you know, you're kind of retrieving those types of objects from other entities, maybe Google, maybe Facebook. But that's not really a transact. It's not really like a bearer asset in that I have this picture and then I'm going to send it to you. And because I sent it to you, it's no longer with me. Like it's no longer mine. Um, And Bitcoin is the first time that there has been a scarce digital asset um, where that scarcity hasn't required a central party to kind of, you know, mimic or enforce scarcity. It's just inherently scarce. Here's a a question that I've found that um, people tend to ask is, if there's only 21 million, people don't understand how that works. They're like, well, there's seven, seven and a half billion people in the world. There's not enough for everybody. So, yeah, yeah, uh, totally. So the in, one important aspect of it to understand is that although there are a max of 21 million Bitcoin, each Bitcoin can be sliced up very granularly. So it is possible to send up to one 100 millionth of a Bitcoin. Um, on the Bitcoin network and potentially even smaller units if you really needed to using kind of higher layer solutions at some point. Um, but the, the short answer there is there's enough to go around, although the supply is fixed. So if you do the math on that, like one 100 millionth of a Bitcoin actually makes it possible to send value in even smaller amounts than we've technically been able to. So you can send a fraction of a penny to someone using Bitcoin. Mm. And that isn't even possible in the you know traditional financial system. So if you try to send a nickel to someone around the world using PayPal or Visa, that's not going to fly. Like it just gets eaten away in fees. There's too much overhead and so forth. Um, so it also, if these you know micropayment use cases uh, can come to fruition, it unlocks some pretty exciting use cases there too around like now that we have the ability to send money in such small amounts, what does that enable us to do? What like, could the internet be almost fueled by Bitcoin? Would it be more efficient if rather than a complex system of intermediaries and advertisers, if content creators could just get compensated directly for consumers via Bitcoin. Um, If you stream a video or a song from your system or uh, if YouTube streams videos to people, maybe they pay per megabyte or per second or whatever the the time frame is, maybe they pay in Bitcoin. And at the moment, that's something like uh, what basic attention token is doing. So with the Brave browser, I've seen. Yeah, yeah. I've got that actually installed on my on my YouTube channel and my website. So nice. Yeah, yeah, I run the Brave browser too. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Oh yeah, yeah. I, I just uh, I I'd, I'd heard about it several years ago and I used the first like the beta version of it way back, but um it was missing too many things for it to replace Chrome as my main browser, but uh now that it's stepped up a lot, I've uh, I've started using it. So it's I think it's yeah. pretty exciting as well. 
Yeah, I agree. It's come a long way recently. And that would be a good, uh, for any listeners who aren't familiar with Brave, that would might be a neat thing to check out. So they're a web browser um, based on Google Chrome. They're compatible now, luckily, with all of the, you know, or most of the popular Chrome extensions um, and very focused on privacy and anonymity. So a lot of features to uh, help guarantee that, help kind of block ads by default and make your web browsing experience better. But they're also doing it in a pretty thoughtful way. So there are a lot of ad blockers out there that just kind of block ads and that's the end of it. Um, but their vision is, you know, block ads by default, but still have a long-term plan and strategy for how to ultimately compensate content creators who, you know, need to be compensated for what they're doing in order to, to kind of fund what they do. So yeah. uh, awesome, man. So do you consider yourself, um, are you a Bitcoin maximalist or do you think that there is room for other cryptocurrencies? At the moment, there's about 2,000 or so out there. Um, obviously, Bitcoin is the best known one. It's the king, but there's another 1,000 and several hundred out there. So what are your thoughts on that? Sure, sure. Um, I do describe myself as a Bitcoin maximalist. That term comes with a lot of baggage. So on you know, Twitter, there are if you call yourself a maximalist, then people make a lot of assumptions about how much you hate altcoins and <laughs> that like if you know that I just like don't talk to or associate with anybody if I find out that they it, it own gets, Ethereum. It gets, or... it, gets it gets political, man. <laughs> crypt crypt yeah, crypto, yeah. crypto gets political. Absolutely. Um, I, I like to think that I'm a, I'm kind of a down-to-earth, open-minded maximalist. Um, so I, I consider myself a pretty practical maximalist in that I'm not, you know, I don't like worship at an altar of Satoshi. I don't think Bitcoin <laughs> is the one for just like, for, you know, zealous reasons. Um, I really think Bitcoin is going to dominate, but I think it's going to do that for very practical reasons. It's got the largest market cap. Um, it has the most liquidity. I think it has the highest developer and technical talent in the space. And I think if any other coins do offer significant differentiation, then, you know, I, I almost view altcoins as sort of like, feature requests for Bitcoin. Like if an altcoin really, really saw strong adoption and it seemed to be a big threat to Bitcoin, then that is an opportunity. That's a free market experiment. And Bitcoiners can look at that and go, okay, why is the, like, is this a threat or is this doing something interesting and useful? And if so, is there something that we can incorporate into Bitcoin as a result of that? Um, and so long-term, if I had to hold any digital asset and I could only hold one, absolutely 100% Bitcoin. Um, I think the others range from interesting technical experiments that I respect to just, you know, flat out scams on the far end yeah, of the spectrum. Yeah, I, I, think, I think it would be fair to say that a good uh, 90, 95% to 98%, I think it would be fair to say, are like junk basically Absolutely. yeah I, I agree 100%. I, I think most of the ones in the top top 30 out of push you know top 100 150 I think not all, not every single one but I, I think that there are there are a lot of projects in there that are doing interesting stuff in various arenas you know some of them are trying to compete with Bitcoin as a currency whereas other ones are you know, more like decentralized platforms or taking something that already exists and moving it onto a blockchain. 
So I think there, I think there are quite a few interesting projects there. I'm kind of like a, I'm I'm not a I'm not a Bitcoin maximalist myself. Maybe maybe I'll maybe I'll become one. As uh, it, seems, <laughs> it seems like as people stay in the space longer, they tend to move in that direction. But um, yeah. I'm I'm kind of like a major majority Bitcoin position, and then dabble in some other stuff that I think is is cool and is going to have some legs and longevity. Yeah, and my journey through Bitcoin uh, definitely had a lot of altcoins in it. So you know, I wasn't always a Bitcoin maximalist. Um, I think it's pretty natural when you first discover the space to probably hear about Bitcoin first, since it is the largest and first. But then you think, okay, well, uh, you know, what is the the next thing? Um, like, what is Bitcoin 2.0? We're kind of mm. conditioned through rapid iteration in the internet and in apps, going back to what we were talking earlier, to kind of always be looking for the the next thing. And so naturally, like when I started, I was like, oh, Bitcoin's neat. Um, there's this Litecoin thing. Uh, it seems pretty similar. It's cheaper. I kind of convinced myself at the time. Yeah. Um, but over time, after dabbling in altcoins, learning more about them and uh, being hands on with quite a few, I have done a 180 and have come back to, you know, believing most strong, like Bitcoin being the only coin that I have long term confidence in. Um, and that's a pretty common path from what I've observed over the years in Bitcoin. Seeing people enter the space, um, you know, maybe get some skin in the game with Bitcoin, go big into altcoins, and then kind of walk that back over the years. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting, man. So how do you see the next, um, where do you see the future going for it? So obviously you are a long-term, long-vision investor in this space. So why right there are people who don't get it the majority of people don't own any bitcoin or any cryptocurrency there are lots of people who are aware of it but they still don't own any and they don't really get like hmm why are some people so evangelical about this or they're they're looking at the last market where the price took a 75 80% hit and they're like whoa no that's uh that that's crazy like i i can't get involved in that that looks like a scam that looks like a bubble so I'm sure you've heard it all more than I would have because you've, you've been in the space for five to six years now. So yeah, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Like what, where does your long-term bullishness on Bitcoin come from? Yeah, I think um, my long-term bullishness, and I am ultra bullish long-term, comes from looking at Bitcoin's strength as money and its monetary properties. And what scares a lot of people away, as you mentioned, is the volatility. So if you look at price charts of Bitcoin since, say, 2010 or 2011, and this is actually one of my favorite exercises to do at meetups when I speak to people, is I show a graph of the Bitcoin price starting around 2011 and then up through the most recent kind of bubble and downfall uh, to where we are today. And I say, all right, where is the big scary crash? And everybody points to, you know, the, the far right of that graph where you see the run up in 2017 and then the fall um, earlier this year. But actually, the big scary bubble could just as, you know, just as rightly be pointed at late 2013 when it crashed from, you know, $1,000 down, I think, like 70%. And what happens is the next big run up makes 
the the big run up prior to that look mm. tiny. Mm. Um, that and that one in 2013, if you were to just zoom in on that, there would be a crash from a couple of years. I'm getting, before. I'm getting, I'm getting excited. I'm getting excited. I'm ready. Right, right. I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm like I'm just had pain. I've just had pain for two years. I'm 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 I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a dose of hopium here. Don't worry. <laughs> so so psychologically, we're not used to that, and we're not conditioned for that. And it's a function of Bitcoin's scarcity, right? Because the market cannot print more to kind of like as the value goes up in an asset, there's a big incentive in uh, in the creators of that asset to make more to sell mm-hmm. and kind of enrich themselves. But with Bitcoin, the supply is fixed and also the rate of creation is fixed. So no matter, you know, if Bitcoin goes today, as we're recording this, it's about 5,300 US dollars. Um, if it were to skyrocket to a million dollars by tomorrow, there is no way for more miners to go and kind of mine more of this stuff because Bitcoin's algorithm um, that determines how many are created adapts to that in order to ensure that they're created at this predictable rate. So unlike, you know, if the value of silver went to a million dollars overnight, then investors would go out, they would buy a bunch more equipment to mine silver, and they would go exploring because there's this huge bounty on creating more. Or they would like try to fly rockets to asteroids and like get a bunch of silver out there, which also will be a thing out there. Um, so with Bitcoin, the, the scarcity is far more perfect and known than even some of the assets that have been viewed as safe haven assets and attractive for those reasons, like gold. Yeah. So I, I was a big fan of you know gold and still am to some degree, but I think Bitcoin has all of its strengths plus more, plus yeah. transportability and, um, and immutability. So long term, I see the phase that we're in right now as a very volatile and speculative one. I I would recommend to anyone thinking about investing in Bitcoin to brace for volatility and accept it as inevitable. There are a lot of people who say, oh, well, you know, I'll wait to to kind of get my skin in the game, but I want it to settle down first. And I don't think it's going to be settling down anytime soon. Um, It's if you look at actually how new money kind of comes into existence and is adopted, it typically happens in these four phases. So first it's this collectible item with no monetary value. And then in subsequent phase, it's sort of this speculative store of value phase where it has a market price and people, you know, invest in it to store their wealth there, but it's not necessarily used to list prices or to transact very heavily. Um, And then only after that highly speculative store of value phase, do you really enter phases in which using it as a medium of exchange day to day for payments, or especially as a unit of account to like list prices in as a merchant, um, only after uh, those phases do those things become practical at all. Yeah. And I know you're not, um, you're obviously not able to predict the future, but if you were to try to estimate how long do you think that speculative phase that we're currently in, how long do you think that's going to last? How long do you think it'll be until there's a, you know, I don't know what level of adoption would be needed to stable it out, but how far, how far in the future are you, are we talking, are we talking decades? Are we talking 
you know, how, lo how long do you think it might take for that level to be reached? I, it's hard to say. I'd say we're going to take at least 10, 15 years to do it, probably more. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that it would need, I think even before we get to the end of that phase, we will see huge, unprecedented increases in price. Uh -oh. um, because we do really, and again, you know, not investment advice, not investment <laughs> advice for anyone listening, all the usual disclaimers. Yeah. Um, but I, as someone with skin in the game and strong belief in this, um, you know, I do think that we will see right now, Bitcoin's market cap is somewhere near $100 billion. Sounds like a big number. But if you look at that relative to other asset classes with which Bitcoin competes, it's a drop in the bucket. So the value of gold in the world estimated uh, above ground gold is about $7 trillion. So you know, 100 billion versus 7 trillion. Let's say Bitcoin failed miserably at any of the micropayment use cases that seem promising at any of the like low latency, buy your coffee type of transactions. Um, I think it's going to succeed for that. But let's just hypothetically say it does not. Let's say all it does well is digital store value gold. That is still a huge market potential going from a market cap of $100 billion to $7 trillion potentially stealing that from gold. So I think it's going to do all that and a lot more. Oh, wow. Okay. 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 I'm, 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 feeling, I'm feeling a bit better. I've got some hopium now. I've got some hopium. It's been a, anyone who's not invested, it's, it's been a very rough um, year and a half. It's been a very rough year and a half now for uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in general. The market peaked late 2017, early 2018. And then since then, it's taken a, a beating to the tune of $700 billion market, in terms of market cap. Which yep. I, I know it's not a, it's not a strict exact measure, but um, that's like a 80, 80%, 85% drop from where it was at its peak. So yeah, so you know, we're, we're, we're still here. We're still optimistic. But um, yeah, it's been a it's been a rough ride. Yeah, one of my favorite things to do during these types of bear markets, and you're right, it has been a rough ride. Um, with each cycle like this that you see, it gets a little bit easier, I think, to weather the storm psychologically. And one thing I like to do during times like this is just flip back and read headlines from mainstream media during the previous crashes. Um, and there are things along the lines of, you know, so there's a great site out there actually called Bitcoin Obituaries, oh, where, yeah, they're, <laughs> where they're collecting these. And yeah. so I would recommend everybody go and check that out if you want some historical perspective. But inevitably, every time there's some huge dip in price, uh, you'll just get these Bitcoin is dead headlines, RIP Bitcoin. I guess it's time to move on. Um, you know, there are headlines from Forbes back when Bitcoin was $15. Uh, the oh same thing along those lines. Oh, of, no. you know, this Bitcoin thing's dead. Everybody yeah. move on. It's over. Um, <laughs> and I think, you know, maybe in the future, we will be here while Bitcoin is $100,000, having just crashed from $500,000. And we we're talking <laughs> about how dead it is. And yeah, that's just yeah. how this goes. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's funny, man. But yeah, no, I've I've got the um, I've got my long term my long term vision goggles on for this because, yeah, it's uh, because as far as I'm concerned, the the reason why I bought in in the first place, the fundamentals haven't changed. Well, they've got they've improved. If anything, they've improved. To be honest, it's, it's the bear market's gone on for over a year now, so it's gotten to the stage where I'm not bought. Like when it was happening, like early 2018. 
I was man, that was that was rough. Like I, I'm not a I'm not a super emotional person, but I had some time. I was looking at the thing. I was it was just dropping and dropping and, dro- and I was just like, holy crap! Like, like it must stop, oh, yeah. and it just kept, it, it didn't stop. It just kept, <laughs> it, it just kept going. It, it got to a point where I was like, okay, you know what? Like I'm just gonna see the funny side of this, right? Like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make any stupid stupid move. I'm just going to like, it's got into the stage where I just, someone asked me about it and I, I kind of just smile and like chuckle because I'm like, yeah. Like, <laughs> and, yeah. And on one hand, I'm like super optimistic long-term, but in the short term, I'm kind of like, yeah, like that was, uh, I, got, I got a bit <laughs> yeah, over, I over a, I have a t-shirt. Yeah, <laughs> I have a t-shirt and, uh, and a sticker on my laptop with, um, with my preferred strategy for these types of bear markets. And it's a picture of an astronaut meditating with a Bitcoin oh, yeah. moon in the background. And I think that's, I think that is the, approach that I strive for in this is just to kind of be Zen and remind myself that this is how it goes. Volatility is inevitable. And certainly like, you know, maybe I'm wrong about this Bitcoin thing. I would recommend anyone thinking about getting into this only invest what you can afford to lose. Um, So I do go through the mental exercise of if this thing went to zero dollars, how would I feel about my life and and all of that? Um, And as long as the answer is, you know, you'd still feel good, then then I think you're invested to a healthy extent. Yeah. But I do believe in it, not only for monetary gains, but because philosophically, I believe it would be a better world if we had a, a Bitcoin standard for money. Yeah. So in your mind, what's the best case scenario and what's the worst case scenario? And how could either of those unfold? For price or for sort of like world implications with this Bitcoin stuff? Let's say both. Let's say both. So you talked about it potentially going to zero. I mean, is that, do you think that's possible? And how would that, how would that realistically occur? Like, I mean, I I can't think of how it would go to zero. I can think of it, how it could go pretty low, but I, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. And I actually, I love that, um, you know, just kind of the, the thinking about seeing people think about, could it go to zero? And how could that happen? Because if you rewind a few years, that was not a crazy idea at all. It was like, yes, of course, this Bitcoin thing could go to zero. And while it is still a possibility every year that it continues to exist and to be immutable and to do what it's doing, um, that idea just becomes increasingly crazy. And, uh, And so... I would say, yeah, of course, zero is the worst case, um, very slim possibility of that occurring. Uh, as far as whether the bottom is in yet, I do actually think the price bottom is in now. And like as of the last few weeks, we've seen a pretty strong reversal. Uh, I could be wrong. I'm not a very good short-term trader. So, um, you know, it, I wouldn't be shocked if we saw something down to the 2000s, but um, but I do think that the short-term price bottom is in and that hopefully the beginning of at least an accumulation phase, if not a kind of subsequent bull run has begun. Um, in terms of the long-term implications, I will give a plug to one of my f- three favorite books in the world. So there's a book called The Sovereign Individual that, a lot of people in the Bitcoin community have read and talked quite a bit about, and I'd highly recommend it to readers. It was written by a couple of um, of British political scientists, and it was written back in 1997, which is you know well before Bitcoin, but even before the internet was nearly as big of a deal as it is today. And they make some bold predictions about the impact of technology, especially communications technology, on society. And they kind of 
you know, classify the, our evolution into these ages. And so you had like the hunter gatherer age and they talk about the dominant institution of each age. So in the age of hunter gatherers, the dominant institution was like the physically strongest individual in the tribe or the physical strongest tribe in a collection of tribes. Um, and then you fast forward to the age that we've all existed in for most of our lives, um, the industrial age. And the dominant institution of our age is the nation state, um, you know, so U.S. government, U.K. government uh, and so forth. And prior to that, it was really the church. So uh, like going back to, you know, before the before the sort of 1400s, 1500s, um, the church really ruled everything about life. So even education, schooling um, and so forth. And they discuss the transition from the industrial age that we've existed in for most of our lives to the next age of human evolution, the information age. And they actually use the fall of the Berlin Wall as kind of a, a milestone indicator of when this, this really began. And the start of this is kind of with the decentralization of technology. So the advent of the microprocessor and then the internet, which broke the further broke the monopoly on communications that the printing press started to break hundreds of years ago. And they predict in this book back in 1997, that after we've kind of unlocked communication from those monopolies, then at some point we will unlock money from those monopolies. We will take money out of the hands of these central institutions and bankers. And the long-term implications for how society is organized when that happens get pretty wild and pretty fascinating. And they uh, theorize that the dominant institution of the information age will be the individual. So an individual being as powerful as a nation state has historically been or more powerful um, because they no nation states no longer have the ability to enforce taxes um, or to seize the wealth of people who have created wealth. Mm. So if you have, um, you know, even safe haven assets like bars of gold, historically, those have been great in certain ways, but it's been difficult to transport them or to flee with them. So if people really wanted to steal your wealth, they could come and, you know, kick down your door and, you know, with weapons and take gold that you physically have stored or money that you physically have stored. Mm. Or if you were being displaced as, say, a refugee, then you would often have to leave behind a lot of your wealth. And with Bitcoin, that's no longer true. So it really, you know, with Bitcoin, you can even go so far as to store your Bitcoin in your brain, which I know sounds a little wild and listeners might be thinking, what in the world does that mean? <laughs> um, but you can essentially memorize a phrase of words, like a secret password. Uh, and that anyone in the world who knows those words would be able to spend your Bitcoin. But unless you voluntarily give that to someone else, then they cannot steal your wealth. And if you were the only one who knew that password and you <laughs> expired, then those Bitcoin would be forever unspendable. And that kind of changes the logic of violence and the, the means of extracting wealth from people that nation states have enjoyed for the last few hundred years. And so I think a lot of the 
scary seeming, uh, you know, large scale wars, um, things that, uh, that we've seen in the world that uh, have been, in my opinion, mostly bad, a little bit of good, but mostly bad. Um, I think Bitcoin represents the potential for a positive change in a very different direction. That sounds good. I think everybody can get on board with that. <laughs> <laughs> now, so, wouldn't uh, be would not be a perfect world, would not be a utopia, but but I think would be an improvement over what we've got today. Uh, dude, uh, every attempt for a utopia has ended in dystopia. So I'm quite happy. With, <laughs> uh, a lot, a lot in the 20th century, a lot of people try to bring utopia, and it, it, the results were not good. So I'm quite happy with um, you know, the world being imperfect. We can make it better. But uh, anytime someone starts talking utopia, I I, I'm, I get worried. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> yeah, <man. laughs> I think we share that natural skepticism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, yeah. So what's uh, so what's next for you? What are you um, what what are you working on at the moment, or what do you have planned for your future? Do you want to continue to? Is your goal to spread the word about Bitcoin to more people, or to develop stuff on the blockchain, or you know how how do you um, how do you see yourself fitting into the space in terms of what you're doing now and what you want to do in the future? Yeah, definitely. Um, that's a question that I've been asking myself a lot over the last few years. So Bitcoin has always been a passion of mine. I actually took a sabbatical between work at startups to travel the world for six months, kind of backpack around the world. And a big theme of that trip was speaking to people, helping the average person understand what this Bitcoin thing is, why I think it's a huge deal, how they might be able to benefit from it. Um, so I do, you know, I'm not uh, a prolific speaker like the Andreas Antonopoulos's of the world. Um, and a little plug for Andreas, he's an awesome Bitcoin author and speaker. I highly recommend anyone listening, check out his material as well. Um, I have done things historically on a smaller scale. So kind of uh, meetups, small businesses. Um, I still do consult both for kind of Bitcoin um, education for retail investors, as well as institutions, so venture capital firms, family offices. Um, I also still do web engineering, like I'm a tech nerd at heart and yeah. I like cloud computing infrastructure. That's been most of my professional background. So I still do a lot of that day to day and am very interested in investing in tech. I think investing in general, I've gained a huge appreciation for after Bitcoin got me thinking more about kind of, you know, money, time, investing, how you spend your your hours in the day and how you you spend your wealth. Mm -hmm. um, so have been getting a little bit more into the finance realm recently as well and dabbling in uh, kind of small scale startup investing in modest investments in seed stage companies, a couple in the Bitcoin space, a couple in um, other kind of non-Bitcoin specific spaces too. Awesome. So... That's awesome, man. Yeah, but I'll be, I'll be, I'll tell you two things for sure. I will be tweeting and I will be hodling. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're going to be tweeting, where can, where can people find you? Oh, beautiful. Um, yeah, I'm on Twitter. Uh, Twitter also is by far the best source for kind of day-to-day -day Bitcoin information. It's what brought me to, to learning about Bitcoin is what brought me to Twitter. Um, and it's great for that. Uh, I'm on there. Uh, my Twitter username is S-T-H-E-N-C. S -T -H -E -N -C. So uh, give me a follow if this is the kind of stuff you're interested in. Awesome. Stephen Cole, man. So good to talk to you, dude. 
And um, we will definitely talk again in the future. Until then, we will both keep tweeting. We will keep hodling. And uh, <laughs> we'll, keep, we'll keep spreading the word and spreading that, spreading that hopium. Sounds like a plan. Great to chat, Zuby. I appreciate it. <laughs> All good, man. This is Real Talk with Zuby. Thank you for tuning in. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.